0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, May 15th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Behind every great fortune, there lies a great crime. Balzac said that. Behind every great charity, there lies a great misdirection. Pesca said that. He doesn't stand by it entirely, but it is kind of true. Think about the great charitable prizes, right? The Nobel Prize, who. Bequeath that. The guy who invented dynamite. Felt a little bad about himself. Think about the Pulitzer Prizes. Joseph Pulitzer, big yellow journalist. Think about the Ford Foundation. Turns out Ford's not that nice a guy. I've been thinking about this in thinking about the Clinton Foundation today. George Stephanopoulos, the host of a lot of shows on ABC, Good Morning America, and This Week, kind of apologized no he apologized but every apology every sentence had a qualifier because he gave a lot of money to the clinton foundation although to him as they said it was just a small portion of his overall charitable giving he said i now believe that directing personal donations to the foundation was a mistake Oh, good. Okay, good. So that's Well, even though I made them strictly to support work done to stop the spread of AIDS, help children, and protect the environment in foreign countries. So, you know, that's totally wrong. I understand that. You people are monsters! Stephanopoulos went on to say, I should have gone the extra mile to avoid even the appearance of a conflict. I hate the appearance of the conflict argument. Either there's a conflict or there's not. And I think there's a conflict! He did a very tough accusatory interview with a guy who wrote a book about the Clinton Foundation, and he doesn't say, by the way, I give to this foundation. I'm not on the payroll, but I support this foundation. Yes, we as the viewers should have known that. And overall, the bigger picture about the Clinton Foundation, well, Andrew Tyndall, who uh, covers TV and uh, has been chronicling what's been on the network news for years and years, paraphrased Stephanopoulos' quasi-apology as this, I should have gone the extra mile in order to relieve my employer from having to decide whether the check." work I was supporting was bonafide or a political front operation. I don't know what percentage it is, but it's not zero. There's some percentage of the Clinton Foundation that does seem to be political. George Stephanopoulos, not a secret. How did we ever get to know George Stephanopoulos in the first place? He worked for the Clintons. But that charitable foundation, sure, you got the helping children, you got the protecting the environment, you got the AIDS. You also got the approving the Ukrainians to drill in Canada and stuff like that. All right. On the show today, I spiel about death. Sorry. But there'll be some fun parts in the middle, like blues names. But first, another kind of passing. David Letterman is going off the air next week. So from the home office in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, to a five-story office tower in New Rochelle, it's a late-night world of love. On May 20th, David Letterman will leave the stage. He left the stage or the NBC stage once before 1993. And that's actually a sub theory of mine that late show Letterman versus late night Letterman are two really different beasts, but I will miss him. I will miss him more than I even believed I would miss him. I mean, I've been watching a lot of old Letterman, a lot of guy under the seats, a lot of interviews. Like let's take this moment. I don't know how I came across this moment interviewing Shirley MacLaine, and he shows that he's pretty mean, he shows that he's pretty irascible, but then, on the moment, he shows how intelligent he is. Like, if you had a deja vu experience? Right, oh sure, yeah, I've had those, sure. So would you be interested in uncovering what that might have been about? Well, I think I know what that's about. I think it's just a physiological phenomenon that happens to everybody. It's the circuitry of your uh, central nervous system perceiving something before your conscious gets the message. And by the time your conscience gets the message, uh, you realize that it's come through once before. Anyway, that's not even typical, Dave. Typical, Dave, are the stunts and comedy that's so funny and so... All the words. Ironic, subversive, groundbreaking, that I guess you could say he paved the way, but he did it kind of quietly, kind of silently. On the side, on Slate, we have uh, a series of articles... Personal reflections, contemplations of the state of late night now. Looking back at Letterman, looking forward, taking the landscape of late night. Uh, Laura Bennett, who oversees our culture coverage, or, like, you have an official title, Laura?
0: I'm a senior editor, so I oversee TV coverage, and I'm sure our culture editor, Dan Coyce would appreciate my stealing his title from him, but yeah, I'm happy how, to have it. That's
1: how it goes. And it's Letterman. It's Letterman that really kicked this right. off, right?
0: hmm Definitely. So
1: what's your yeah. personal interaction or take on him and... Does it fit in with my theory that a lot of what you think about Letterman has to do with your generation?
0: Uh, I think that's definitely right. I mean, it's really interesting. It's been It's interesting to hear you talk about Letterman and it was interesting to edit this package because, you know, ha- being, having been a culture editor for the last few years and sort of been paying close attention to Letterman for the last few years, it's just been sad to watch him. He has just seemed so... Enervated, so visibly over the job. It's just, I mean, and and he said as much. Like in the, he Dave Itzkoff interviewed him in the Times, and Letterman, you know, in typical Letterman fashion, he was so self-deprecating and so self-aware. But he's like, I've been, you know, speaking of usurping. He's like, I've, uh, you know, I've been dethroned. Yeah. So I mean, it's so it's been so interesting to watch him in contrast to the Jimmys, like Fallon and Kimmel, and you know, newer installments like James Corden. These sort of Boyish, prankish guys who always make the guest and the audience feel comfortable, who want to create an atmosphere of sort of goofiness and fun. And then Letterman just, uh, you know, despite having in some ways invented the viral format, like invented the idea of modular bits that were sort of easily segmented and could, you know, could, could have gone viral if that yeah. were possible, he just seems so out of place in this new, easy, laid back, goofy late night landscape.
1: Yeah. In the, well, likability has become ascendant for good and ill. But, you know, Letterman said it in that interview with Itzkoff. He said something along the lines of, you know, he always worshipped Johnny Carson. And he said about Johnny that because it's 1130, people are just looking for a pleasant experience. And I wish I could do that. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's what they're getting now. They're getting a fun friend. And Letterman was not always that.
0: Right. And I think part of what's so interesting about uh, Jessica Winter's piece, so Jessica Winter, who's also a senior editor, wrote about sort of watching Letterman as a a kid throughout her childhood and kind of reconciling his, you know, how uncomfortable he could make you and how he sort of unseated his guests, how he... Uh, he wouldn't let them just sit back and promote themselves he wanted to make. In some ways, he I mean, he was such a deeply uncomfortable guy in his own skin that he wanted to bring everyone into that. And it made for weird TV, yeah. like sometimes sort of alienating but compelling. And it was just this, like, bizarre alchemy that was so Letterman. Like, no one has, no no one, has, it wasn't Carson. I mean, yeah. Carson was smooth and schmoozy and made everybody feel comfortable. And Letterman somehow became a source of comfort for mainstream America without ever having that sort of comfort being sort of a style or a tactic.
1: Well, I remember as I look back, I know he had this reputation for being mean, but I guess how I perceived it was his targets were people I thought who deserved their comeuppance. So when Cher called him an asshole, Cher is a blowhard, right. you know, and Shirley MacLaine is ridiculous about yeah. past lives. And he never in that Shirley MacLaine interview, he's not exact. I know this is an interview. Where he does some things that are maybe off-putting to the subject, maybe not at all gracious. Yet as a viewer, I reveled in it. And now it just seems that... You know we've gone 180 and i think a lot of these guys i think jimmy fallon puts on a great show for what jimmy fallon is i think jimmy kimmel is actually more creative than jimmy fallon and we could talk about that a little bit but they're not at all ever willing to be you know butt up against the celebrity oh my god god forbid now the stock and trade is getting the celebrity to play along with your gags and letterman did that too but it's just so much celebrity fawning
0: right i think that's definitely true and it's so interesting uh, again, it's another reason why it's specifically interesting to watch Letterman now, because I saw an interview recently he did with Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Aubrey Plaza is this young female comic, and he was visibly confounded by her. <laughs> yeah. Her sort of self-presentation, her, like, withdrawn sort of irony. Uh, not really.
1: Don't drink beer? Well, sure, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you get drunk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you... I used to be a horrible alcoholic Okay. for all my life. I started drinking when I was like 13 and, and continued till I was 34. Yeah. And, and I was drunk 80% of the time. Yeah, I'm like a, a bit of an all or nothing kind of, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, uh, I loved so, it. I was one of yeah. those guys that uh, I looked around and everyone else had stopped drinking and I couldn't understand why. Yeah, I get that, yeah. I get that. For me, it's like uh, quantity over quality,
0: exactly. you know what I mean? <laughs> Exactly. And it was right. a terrible interview. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, I found it fascinating. I saw a good, yeah.
1: it was a good interview with Amy Schumer, but at one point he says to her, yeah, yeah. we lead very different lives. Right. And you get the sense that he does. Oh, I mean, totally. I guess that's okay, but you know, who else would admit that? You find that the show gets easier as you go along?
0: No, I find that I'm getting easier, but the show, it.
1: <laughs> no, what, what, honestly, what does that mean?
0: <laughs> I meant sexually, Sex. Dave. Oh,
1: well, that's, thank God.
0: You guys got it. That's
1: not what I thought. Yeah. So Jimmy Kimmel of among these, he's the one who worships Letterman and claim and and is so influenced by him. And I think uh, what was the story he had like a Letterman he had a late night cake for one of his birthdays as a teenager. But do you see it? Do you see where Letterman shows up in Kimmel?
0: Not really. I yeah. mean, it's my real answer. <laughs> like the the way these guys approach the celebrity interview is so dramatically different from Letterman that I see like an alien spawn. Like, yeah. it's just, it uh, It looks so different to me. Isn't
1: it funny yeah. that we say that, right? The way mm-hmm. they approach the interview is so different from Letterman. Not in the last 15, 20 years. Like, it's all, I think everything we're saying is about NBC Letterman. And Siskel and Ebert once said there's never been a great movie that was made in color. I don't think that's true, but it's a provocative thing to say. Maybe if you made the list of the hundred greatest Letterman moments 90-something would be NBC moments, or am I being nostalgic and putting my own era above others?
0: Well, I think if you're being nostalgic, then Letterman is equally nostalgic about the sort of his former era of late night. He, I mean, he talked about this in The Times, that the show somehow, this thing that felt so private and and so self-contained became bigger, flashier, more public somehow in its later incarnation, and that that felt less suited to Letterman's skills. But it's hard for me to separate that from his clear, I mean, his just exhaustion, like the mounting tedium that he showed in doing the same thing over and over again.
1: I think none of Fallon's breakthrough segments, I I can't think of any that happened without celebrities it's all Mm -hmm. a celebrity and that's great and he's great and he's really talented and i love his impression even when it's just an impression of say springsteen and then springsteen comes out and joins him same with neil young it still starts with the impression he's a showman i don't take anything away from him kimmel does that he does mean tweets read by the people he also does some stuff that's just him letterman I mean he had a suit of Rice Krispies he crushed things from a hydraulic press he threw things off a building he wore a velcro
0: suit and threw himself velcro suit
1: monkey cam tiger cam oh my god I didn't even realize this but do you know he was so talk about subversive he was so against reruns that one time he reran a show entirely in Spanish and they didn't say they hired actors I found this article from 1989 David Letterman was entirely in Spanish Monday night in an attempt to elevate Monday's Late night uh, with David Letterman above the level of just another rerun. A crew of Mexican actors was hired to redub the dialogue for the oh program, and they talk about fielding calls. He really wanted to do things with the medium. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. And in one of the clips we put in our late-night package, it was in Jessica Wonders piece, it was this interview, it kind of reminds me of that, in that... All right, so one, he had scheduled to have Levon Helm, Helm from the band on yeah. one time, and Helm didn't show up. And so instead of scrapping the segment or, or filling it or sort of somehow seeming anxious about it, he just brought on the booker yeah. who... But that was know,
1: Gerard Mulligan, who was his longtime writer. So I don't even know if that... Like, you could. it's never real you're never sure what was the artifice and what was true. Right.
0: Sorry, sorry we have to meet under such that's all right circumstances. and uh, once again jerry answering the question is there a dress code for <laughs> yes. the staff no, yes, no we uh, not on the money we make no. now we were uh, <laughs> but no we were all looking forward to meeting mr levon I, helm I uh with the band and of course call miner's daughter sure. and uh tell us nobody was looking forward to it more than i uh, sure. yes i can imagine so I'm still looking forward to it. no, I, no. is a, there a chance he will be here tonight? Your guess is as good as mine. No. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, yeah no I think way. that's probably my favorite moment in history.
1: I enjoy the late-night anthem as sung by sometimes Tom Jones, sometimes Jerry Vale, just totally insincere about it being a late-night world of love. Right. It brings a tear to my oh. eye. There's a cool breeze blowing You can feel it across the line It's clear blue skies Eyes, a place where you can stand and late night is the reason our forefathers fought with pride it's surf and fun a dad and son a feeling that's deep inside Lord bennett is a uh, slate's culture zarina senior,
0: <laughs> senior editor
1: is Slate's senior I uh, like Serena. She oversees the TV coverage. She put together this great package on Late Night that we're running. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much, Pesca. So much fun. One podcast on the Panoply Network that I'd like to recommend is the Inc. Uncensored podcast. I don't know why they'd ever censor themselves, but they're really uncensored in our, our podcast. It's Verizon, fuck this, and AOL, shit that. No, it's not. It's a really good discussion, and it makes it meaningful. And then at the end, I don't want to step on it, but Ledbetter pulls an ad out of the ether that I vaguely remember, and it is Norm McDonald and an internet genius entrepreneur being whacked. You got to listen. And now the spiel, your coils looking a little mortal. Today, Jakar Sarnayev, Boston bomber, sentenced to death. I do not think that is unjust, but if I had a vote, wait, it's democracy, you have a vote, a eh, little bit. But if I had a real vote, I would say that the death penalty is administered so unfairly that it means that some people who really do deserve death shouldn't get death. I'd make the trade-off. Sarnayev living in a supermax prison for the rest of his life, 23 hours a day in a single cell, one hour a day and not in the yard, in a slightly larger cell. That cell has a shower and a chin-up bar. That existence... That might be less than justice. Killing him might be justice. I think it might. But if it means that we keep this guy alive, and if what that means is we don't make these other mistakes, these documented mistakes that we've made with poor and anonymous and under-the-radar inmates and felons and supposed felons, I would take that. That is the choice I would make. So now we know how death will come to Jokar Tsarnaev. Death came to B.B. King after 89 years of bluesmanship. The B.B., I did not know this. How did I not know this? The BB stood for... Do you know what it stood for, Andrea? The gun. Oh, the BB gun. Oh, that's good. Blues boy. BB stood for blues boy king. Which got me to thinking, I want a blues nickname. Let's see. Let's go down the list and see which nicknames are taken and which names are available. You got Barbecue Smith. You got Barkin' Bill Smith, Barrelhouse Chuck. Arthur Big Boy Crudup, Willie Big Eyes Smith. Johnny Big Moose Walker, Otis Big Smoky Smothers. Just a lot of bigs, a lot of littles. Boogie Woogie Red, Bumblebee Slim. Eddie Cleanhead Vincent. So named because he was once left bald after a run in with some lie. Cow cow Davenport, cripple Clarence Lofton, Cincinnati Slim, Drive Him Down. Willie Hall was just called Drive Him Down. Eddie guitar burns. You got a lot of guitars. You got guitar Slim, you got Matt guitar Murphy. A lot of these guys actually played guitar. A few of them played clarinet. I would be sousaphone Pesca. Clarence Gatemouth Brown, Lionel Hampton also known as Gate or Gates because one time they said, "Lionel, you're swinging like a gate." You know, Bill Gates, kind of a nerdy guy, not a blues legend. But Paul Allen called out as he was coding, "Brother, you're coding like a cipher. Bill baby, you're breaking that code. I'm gonna call you Alan Turing." Didn't stick. George Mojo Buford, H-Bomb Ferguson, Hip Link Chain, Hollywood Fats, Dave Honeyboy Edwards, Howlin' Wolf, Iron Board Sam, so named for his habit of strapping his legless keyboard on top of an ironing board when he performed. He could have been called Back of a Well-Trained Dog Sam, but it was not meant to be. Jelly Roll Morton, Johnny Drummer, Johnny Drummer, best instrument, not actually the drums, probably better at keyboards. Also, Couple other Johnny Drummer facts. Chicago PD officer all his life. Johnny Drummer's real name, are you ready? It's Thessex Johns. Thessex Johns. Thessex is spelled T H E S S E X. The sex! He had the sex! Magic Sam, Magic Slim, Memphis Mini, Memphis Slim, Memphis Grizzlies, made that up. Pine Top Perkins, Pine Top Smith, Scrapper Blackwell, C6 Steve, Shaky Jake Harris, Slim Harpo, Washboard Sam, Washboard Willie, not named in the same way Ironing Board was named, named because he actually worked in a car wash and he fronted Washboard Willie and the super suds of rhythm, Whistlin' Alex Moore, and Blues Boy King. So I've gone through all these names and I figured out the one I want. I'm going to be the Velvet Bulldozer. Oh, damn, that's been taken to by Albert King. You know what? Maybe I don't need a blues nickname. I mean, I like the blues. I love listening to the blues. But do I got a right to sing the blues? I have no such right. BB, we will miss you. And you know what? I got a lot of nice comments yesterday about when I talked about my cousin who died on the Amtrak train outside of Philadelphia, my cousin Laura. Laura. My friend Katia told me that she was friends with one of the victims, Scott Polo, who hosts a public radio show in Lansing, Michigan, that I've been on, and he's a big fan of The Gist, says he also knows uh, this particular victim, Rachel Jacobs, her mother's a former state senator up there in Michigan. And I also found out that people knew my cousin, people who I know who I didn't even know knew my cousin. So it got me to thinking that there are all these great connections that we don't even know of until something like a tragedy propels them forward. How a great sadness can dust the landscape of friendship networks and connections or shine like an ultraviolet light on it. And what's revealed is what you would have never seen before in the bright light of carrying out your days or hustling to your next appointment or mistyping the text. Sorry, I was busy. So it winds up in the intended person's phone as something close to that, but closer to meaninglessness. Facebook's pretty good at telling us who is connected to us. And there are lots of apps that want to monetize that or set you up on a date based on that or offer you a web hosting service based on that. But if you don't do anything with the connections, you know, people you see once a year, people you see every other year, people you want to see more. If you don't do anything with them, they turn vestigial. So I say check out your calendar. You probably have last year's calendar handy to you or some list of texts you sent or Facebook messages you messaged. Go to a year ago today and work backwards and find someone you emailed with or chatted with or interacted with and you haven't seen or really spoke to since. But it's a friend. It's a person you like, maybe a person you knew a little. And give them a call or a text or a tweet or do whatever you need to do to, in some way, connect so that's it for today's show and now from the home offices in wahoo nebraska tonight's category top 10 gist staffers or mobster nicknames Gist staffers or mobster nicknames Gist
0: staffers or mobster nicknames these are gist staffers GIST staffer or mobster, or mobster
1: nicknames. nicknames here we go GIST staffers GIST staffers mobster 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 nicknames. Nicknames. number 10 Andrea, the producer, Salenzi, number nine; Dominic, the Gap, Patrilli, number eight; Joseph, Joe Shakes, di Stefano, number seven; Louis Bagels, Dodone. Number six, Joel, Managing Producer Meyer. Number five, Patty Muscles Romanello. Number four, Joe Popcorn Vaccaro. Number three, Andy, the Executive Producer Bowers. Number two, Anthony, the Executive Producer Lopinto. And number one, it's a tie, Antonio, Tony Ducks Carallo, and Mike, the Unindicted Co-Conspirator Pesca. We'll be back with Terry Garr. Enjoy a hot towel.